1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
3: This idea that the shepherds would flock to him and foreign kings would come to him and bring gifts to him, all of these things have been spoken in God's word beforehand. And so who were these kings? Where did they come from? And why was it that the first people that ever heard about this important man were shepherds? There are reasons for all of these things. Again, there's a coded symbolic language that tells a much larger and deeper spiritual story, but it's a real story.
0: Hello and Merry Christmas. No conspiracies or political subterfuge today, however. Instead, my guest and I are going to explore the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus Christ, from a prophetic perspective. It might surprise some of you to know that details of the Messiah's birth were predicted hundreds of years before his birth in the Old Testament. These prophecies are specific enough that the mathematical probability of Jesus' birth fulfilling even a handful of these prophecies, let alone all of them, is staggeringly improbable, if not impossible. Peter Stoner, chairman of the Departments of Mathematics and Astronomy at Pasadena College, was passionate about biblical prophecies. With 600 students from the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Stoner looked at eight specific prophecies about Jesus. They came up with extremely conservative probabilities for each one being fulfilled, and then considered the likelihood of Jesus fulfilling all eight of those prophecies. The conclusion to his research was staggering. The prospect that anyone could satisfy those eight prophecies was just one in 10 to the power of 17. That's 10 followed by 17 zeros. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, that makes Christ's birth and Christmas even more miraculous, all the more profound. Ali Siadatan is a documentary filmmaker and a student of the Bible who's well-versed in Old and New Testament prophecy. He's the founder of Think Again Productions, a Canadian multimedia teaching ministry shedding light on mysteries and treasures of scriptural knowledge which is making the bible more real than ever hey ali welcome back to conspiracy unlimited how are you
3: fine thank you richard thank you for having me
0: let me take this opportunity to wish you and yours a blessed nativity and a merry christmas
3: yes same to you and to the audience
0: some scholars believe that there are something like 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. Some, of course, relate to his birth, some to his ministry, some to his death and resurrection, some to his, his role in the church. And today, of course, being Christmas, we're going to focus on those prophecies which point to his birth. So where would you like to begin in terms of um, Old Testament prophecies? Is there anything even in Genesis that points to his birth?
3: Well, I would say that the first uh, inclination in that direction is actually uh, something that God says after the fall. He says, you know, uh, I'll put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and we know the seed is from the man, so what, who is this seed of the woman? Um, and this idea that, you know, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, but the serpent will bruise the heel of the seat of the woman, and we know that the nails were put into the heel. And so that, people will see that as kind of, you know, one of the first, uh, you know, hints in the direction uh, of the story of the Messiah. And, you know, this is really fascinating, because people ask themselves, can we believe in the story that God became a man and walked among us, and uh, et cetera, the story that everyone has heard, especially in Western culture... As a student of literature, uh, you know, I spent years uh, studying how is it that books are put together, how is it that stories are told, Um, and, you know, what kind of ways do people innovate in the telling of stories to make it more interesting? You look at a story like, um, uh, you know, what was that story, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Total Recall. Yes. The way that movie is designed, you know, it, it starts... Not from the beginning and goes to the end. So that's called a narrative structure. When I came to study the Bible, I was shocked at how the whole book was put together. I immediately could recognize, as someone who was experienced at digging the structure of books up, that this, I've never seen a book like this. It's multi dimensional, and that, for me, is one of the most interesting ways of actually perceiving that something outside of time and space may have put the story together because of all these clues and puzzles that have been weaved into it um, that the author like moses or elijah or these prophets that we know of didn't even know what they were talking about until it was fulfilled and it all came together and it was like wow there is something interesting here a puzzle that has suddenly become known um, like, for instance, uh, you look at the story of Adam and his children, uh, you know, Adam has Seth, Seth is, has Enosh, Enosh has Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, or Enoch uh, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah, and then, you know, there's the flood. Well, um, if you look at the meaning of these names, what does Adam mean? It means man. Um, Seth means appointed. Uh, Enosh means mortal. Canaan means sorrow, Mahalalel means the blessed God, Jared means shall come down, Enoch means teaching, Methuselah means his death shall bring, and Lamech means the despairing, and Noah means rest or comfort. And these names made sense in the context of the life of these people. There was something going on in the life of these people So that their parents felt that this name, you know, really was appropriate for what was going on at that time in their lives. But but now, when we look back at this kind of hidden map and put it together, it becomes a sentence. Uh, man appointed mortal sorrow, the blessed God shall come down, teaching, his death shall bring the despairing, rest or comfort... Now, there's no way that when these guys were naming their kids, they somehow knew that they were secretly expressing the, the story that we would eventually know as the gospel. But yet, it's there. And so this is these are all the interesting things.
0: Um, when you read these genealogies in the Bible, my first impression is, why did they put that genealogy in there? So-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, not realizing, of course, that there's a code, there's an encryption there. Yes. Otherwise, it just seems like a laundry list.
3: Exactly. And when we get to, the eventually, you know, down the road in a few minutes, when we get to these genealogies, it's recorded of Jesus in the New Testament. I think we really should look at it, look at it in light of what you just said, because there's a reason why those genealogies are recorded about him. Uh, another story in Genesis that I find has kind of these code in it is the story of Abraham um, and his son. The very first time, uh, you know, um, the word love is recorded in the entire Bible, and the first time a word appears is important, it's called the law of first mention, is when God says to Abraham, take your only son, the one whom you love, and you're going to bring him to this mountain and sacrifice him. Now Abraham had another son, Ishmael, and we know that he did love Ishmael as well. But somehow, the Bible focuses on Isaac in this language. So they were desperate to have a child of their own. And in old age, Abraham and Sarah were visited by God and two angels and told that yes, Sarah was going to get pregnant, even though you know she's she's past the age uh, um, uh, that woman you know can, can get pregnant in. And so this is a miraculous child. This is a promised child. Somehow this child is like Jesus. Uh, you know, he's, he's a promise of some kind. And then one day, God says to Abraham, I want you to bring your son on this mountain and sacrifice him and kill him. And I'm sure Abraham must have thought, what's God thinking? Like, okay, so he trusts God and he had offered himself and his household completely to the service of his God. But I have no doubt that somewhere in his mind he was he was thinking, what's going on here? But he complied, and he took his son to Mount Moriah. And Mount Moriah is where the temple stands. You know the temple in Jerusalem, the temple mount that everyone is fighting over? That's on Mount Moriah. And that's where Jesus was also crucified, incidentally. And Abraham, who is living in that region, is told to go to the mountain of Moriah, and he does. And he takes Isaac, and he wraps Isaac up, You know, puts the wood under him, ready to kill him and burn him as an offering. When God says to him, "Stop! Now I know you. You know you've tested your heart. You really are devoted to me. Take this ram that appears in the bush, caught. Sacrifice that instead." And so Abraham is relieved, and he thinks something is happening here. So he calls the name of the mountain. In the mountain of the Lord it shall be seen. Meaning he realizes that he's acting out a prophetic message. Something that is not about what he just did. Something that's pointing to a bigger story. And he's kind of acting it out. And that's what happens is that instead of us, you know, becoming this sacrifice, God sends this ram, this substitution. And that's what I think this season is partly is is kick-starting the idea that some God comes to Earth on a mission. And so this ram and this story kind of, you know, are are about that mission. That's another one of these codes that somehow the life of these people naturally in it, you know, God wanted Abraham's son. He didn't hold back. And centuries later, Abraham's descendants needed God's son, and God did not hold back from them either. And that's, it's somehow pointing to the story and to the mountain and to the spirit of it and so that's another one of these you know secret stories uh that are recorded uh one of my favorite ones is the story of joseph um if you'd like me to continue with that
0: right 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 Uh, well before we we do yeah let's do that one and then i want to ask you about a prophecy of a virgin birth in isaiah but let's do joseph first
3: Joseph has dreams that his family and his brothers and sisters and his parents are going to bow to him, and he's in authority over them. Eventually, uh, you know, they get jealous, they sell him into slavery, and he finds himself uh, being in in an Egyptian prison where he reveals some dreams to some high uh, influential people in the court of Pharaoh, and eventually he's brought to Pharaoh and gives the interpretation of his dreams. And the Pharaoh is so impressed that he makes Joseph the prime minister of Egypt. And there's a famine that hits the land, and his own family eventually comes, you know, looking to buy, uh, you know, grains. And so they do bow to him, but they don't recognize him. They they, they see him as an Egyptian official that speaks Egyptian to to them, and they think he's dead anyways. And he plays the part, and they don't know him. Then... They go away, and, and, and he kind of tricks them to make sure the whole family is brought to Egypt in front of him. And the whole family is eventually arrives, and they bow to him, and now he reveals himself to them. And he says, look, it's me, your brother, and he speaks in their own language. And people say, wow, this is the story of Jesus. The first time he comes, his own family, his own people don't recognize him. The second time, they know him and so this is kind of recording you know uh, the the relationship between you know Jesus and the Jewish people in the first and second coming uh, and and it's it's in the story of Joseph you know the one he's rejected the first time and embraced the second time it's in the story of Joseph and the life of his brothers surely they didn't know that naturally their life was painting a larger picture of a secret spiritual message. And that's why their life gets recorded in the Bible, for everyone to see, because it's bearing witness to a bigger thing, like the Passover lamb, um, like the snake that Moses lifts in the desert. All kinds of clues are left in the Bible that point to the larger story. Surely these people had no idea that that they were recording a message, you know, that eventually would, would point to
0: Christ. And that's why they often say, they, uh, b- Biblical scholars, that the uh, Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed.
3: Yes, all the story of the Bible is already in the five books of Moses. It just gets opened up. Even the story of the exile and return of the Jewish people to the land, the story of the Messiah... It's already there, uh, uh, and and then it gets opened up and revealed. It's fascinating. It's not a normal document. It's just not a normal document.
0: So let's talk about the virgin birth and how that was prophesied in, I believe it's Isaiah.
3: Yes, it's in Isaiah. And Isaiah has many, many, many interesting prophecies about the Messiah. Um, the virgin birth is in there. Um, Again, it's in the context of a king um, who has a problem with his enemy. enemies, a Jewish king. And, um, you know, God says, well, ask me for a sign uh, because God gives him a message. And, 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 you know, God says, ask me for a sign that this message is going to be true. And then the king says, well, I'm not going to ask you for a sign. You give me, give me a sign. And, and, the king, and God says, okay, then this is the sign I'm going to give. Uh, the Lord himself will give you a sign, you know, Isaiah uh, says. Um, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Immanuel. And Immanuel means God at hand or God with us. And the word that's in translated as virgin refers to an, an alna. It refers to, if you look at all the passages where that word exists in the Old Testament, it always refers to a woman... Of marital age, who is not married, which in in the ideal, the biblical ideal, means virgin, and that's how we get the translation. Um, So this is a sign. God says, you know, that's this is this mysterious thing is going to happen. Uh, There will be one of the Jewish people who is going to bear, you know, a child, but this uh, will not, you know, this woman will be a virgin. You know, she won't have the uh, sexual relations with the man yet. She'll get pregnant. And somehow the child will, in fact, be the presence of God with man. And it's a spiritual mystery. Life is very, very uh, spiritual. Another prophecy from Isaiah, along those same lines about a child being born, this one is, is on Christmas cards, but it was written, you know, 700 years before Christ. It was recorded in Hebrew and placed in the Qumran caves, and we have now found that copy, and you can go in you know, in, in Israel and go to the museum and see that before you in the shrine of the book. And this ancient document records these words on it. Uh, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, And the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And then it prophesies something that perhaps pertains to his second uh, coming. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and righteousness From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Um, And it's very interesting because when you kind of look at the conversation between Gabriel and Mary, you know, Gabriel comes down and tells Mary or Miriam that you're going to get pregnant you really see that it echoes this, this language from Isaiah. And, and so Isaiah prophesies 700 years before the time of Christ, but then in a time in the, of, of Mary, you know, whose name was Miriam because she was Jewish, this angel, Gabriel, whom we call Gabriel, arrived to this town. And I've discovered some very important information about the town. It's called Nazareth, uh, but actually it's not called Nazareth actually it's called Netzeret um, that's the real name of this town and, and if you want I can tell you why that name is so important but this angel comes to that town and she comes to a uh, Alma uh, one of these women who's of, of age of marriage but hasn't yet had a kind of marriage you know hasn't had sex yet and so a virgin and she's pledged she's engaged to, to Joseph who's also a descendant of David Um And then the angel says to her, uh, you know, greetings, or probably shalom, Miriam, you know, you are highly favored, Uh, the Lord is with you. And she's, you know, very astonished, Uh, how do I understand this? And he continues, don't be afraid, you have found favor with God, and then he reveals to her something that echoes a lot the words of Isaiah, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him... Yeshua, um, or in Greek, Jesus. He will be great, and we will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. I mean, that's what Isaiah had promised. Now we know who this is going to. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants. Uh, That's the Jewish people, forever. His kingdom will never end. So Isaiah had spoken that in the future there would be a, a man born who would be given divine titles, he would be born of a virgin, and he would be receiving the throne of King David. And in this very simple conversation between Mary and, and Gabriel, all of it comes immediately together. She is a virgin, this is a, a divine you know, birth, uh, God has decided to take on the genes of uh, the household of King David because both Mary and Joseph are the children of David and Gabriel says he's going to inherit the throne of King David and he's going to rule over Jacob's descendants we know from the city of Jerusalem so so all that comes to head suddenly in the life of this one man Mary didn't orchestrate this. This is much bigger than her. This is happening to her. And that's why her answer in her in her great confusion is, wait a second, I'm, I'm not quite getting what you're saying. Um, I'm a virgin. And then the, the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And so, you know she's giving her further explanation, and I don't think she's quite understanding what she is hearing. It's too much for anyone to take. She just is content at the end to say, "I am the Lord's servant. May your word to be may your word be fulfilled in me." Like she's basically saying, "Let it be done to me as you have spoken i I, I subject myself to the will of the kingdom of heaven." whatever is happening here i'll go along with it so mary is now receiving this revelation that somehow she's become the the fulfillment of prophecy is happening the things that were spoken by isaiah hundreds of years before are now taking shape in this
0: city of netzaret what about uh, a prophecy that the christ would be born in bethlehem is there anything in the old testament regarding that
3: Yes that one is in another uh Old Testament prophet Micah. Um and Micah uh it talks it's a very important prophecy and if anyone wants to you know look it up and read it I suggest that uh, the person read um uh, all of the chapter because you know we often only read the one verse you know that's very famous because the Magi come uh, to Herod and to ask about, you know, whether this uh, Messiah has been born. And Herod then turns around to the scribes, to the people that read the Bible in his time, and he says, where is he supposed to be born? And they say, well, they check exactly the passage that I'm about to read to you uh, from Micah, where it says, you know, O you Bethlehem of Uphrata, of the region of Uphrata, the city of Bethlehem, um, even though you're you're small, you're little among the thousands of you know of the towns and cities of Judah, um yet out of you shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel. Um, so you know the one who's going to be king, and because there are so many other passages about such a person, the scribes had to come to the conclusion, oh, this is about that same guy. This is that dude, the Messiah. And so they, they pointed to, to this passage, to, and they said to Herod, oh, he's going to come out of the city of Bethlehem. And then the verse continues, um, who's going to be come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth have been from of old, from everlasting, once again saying that even though he's going to be born in Bethlehem, yes, yet his origins are eternal. Pointing once again, like Isaiah did, that he's both a man and a king, but also... An eternal being; therefore, in the monotheism of Judaism, where there was only one eternal being and that was God, it meant He is God, it's right? It was that was already in these in these words. So we have the time, we have the place, Beth- Bethlehem. We have a lot of you know circumstances: the virgin birth, uh, the household of King David, uh, um, and then we even have the time. I mean, that's that's really fascinating it's one of the most fascinating prophecies of the Bible where God reveals the time of the coming of the Messiah to Daniel the prophet and that's that's a a fascinating thing well let's Um, let's
0: hear about the timing
3: well it you know it's a time of the fifth century BC and the Babylonians have taken over Jerusalem, they've destroyed the temple, they've destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and the Jewish people have been taken captive to Babylon, and God says this is going to last for 70 years. 70 years go by and God says I'm going to destroy the Babylonians, and also they will be judged You know, for the evils they've committed, and they'll be given to another kingdom. And so Daniel, who is in what, a captive and who's been taken as a teenager, and he's Now an old man, he's reading the writings of Jeremiah, the prophet before him, in which it says that this will be 70 years. And God says, you know, you'll inquire of me, and I'm going to then free you. And so he looks at the clock, and he realizes it's been 70 years. The Persians have just taken over Babylon. This is the first year of the rule of the Persian king over the city of Babylon. So he gets on his knees, and he says to God, you know, it, 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 we're, so, I'm sorry, you know, we we were not living according to your ways. You know, we were committing all kinds of atrocities, um, and you know, you wanted to prune and lovingly chastise us and make us better, and and you know, according to your own word, let us return to Jerusalem and rebuild your temple. It's been 70 years, and you said basically we were going back. God then responds to Daniel this incredibly powerful prophecy where he says, "Well." okay, fine, I'll do that, but I'm going to do more for you. I'm going to remove the very thing that causes you guys to continuously have to be exiled and return to the land. I'm going to heal you fundamentally and forever. Once and for all, I'm going to make it right for you guys. But for me to do that, it's going to take uh, 490 years, and then he divides that... In seven-year chunks, so it's going to take seventy-seven years. And, he, and this is a prophecy over your people and over your city, Jerusalem. And then God, you know, breaks it down. It's very interesting, and it, you know, it's its own conversation. But the short of it is, God breaks it down and says, after the sixty-nine seven weeks have passed from the time where the, where the decree to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem has been given, the Messiah will become will come. He'll be killed, not for himself, um, and the, there will be you know, invaders that will come and they will destroy the city and the temple and the sanctuary. And it's interesting because he's receiving a prophecy about the destruction of the second temple and the destruction of Jerusalem a second time even though the temple hasn't even been rebuilt. God's already t- telling him it's going to happen again. And um he's giving him a time that it'll be sixty nine seven-year periods after uh, the decree to build the walls of jerusalem has been given now after daniel writes all this and he dies he dies uh... and the king of persia allows the jews to go back and rebuild the temple it, it becomes obvious that they can't build a temple too many of their old enemies are rising against them they can't construct anything so another person who who is a Jewish-Persian gentleman, he's, he's Jewish and he's Persian, and he lives among, you know, and he serves the king of Persia. His name is Nehemiah. He's the head of the secret services of, of ancient Iran. And he is that close to the king. He runs the secret services of the king for him. Um, that's what it means, that he was the wine taster, because in the old kingdoms, the people could poison the king... And so you had some guy who was so close to you, who's part of the ruling families, that you had appointed him to be your wine taster. Why was it so important a job? Because only one person in the entire kingdom could ever poison the king, and that was the wine taster. So that job was given to one of the most trusted individuals in the kingdom, and he was so trusted that he would naturally become the head of the secret services. And that's who Nehemiah was. And so Nehemiah, um, you know, asks if he can rebuild the walls of Jerusalem so his people can can finish the construction of the temple, and the, this king says yes. And so that happens, you know, in 445 B.C. We have the decree, we have the date of the decree, and counting forward from there, 69 seven-year periods, it brings us right smack into the period of time where Jesus walked on the earth. And he is killed, and after him, like the prophecy in Daniel said, the temple is destroyed, and the city is destroyed. And here is the crazy part. The temple and the city, the temple is destroyed on the ninth of the Hebrew year of Av. And that is exactly the day that several hundred years before the Babylonians destroyed the temple. The temple was destroyed twice on the same exact day of the Hebrew calendar. Now, what are the odds? I mean, the Romans didn't read Hebrew history and then said, oh, the Babylonians destroyed it on the 9th Av." Let's do that again. No, it all was natural, but Daniel's words came true. The Messiah came in that time, you know, and uh, he was killed and the temple was destroyed and the city was destroyed. So the timing of his coming was given. The location was given, Bethlehem, the manner of how God would enter the human world was given, which family and which line, uh, the Davidic line, that was given, um, and the purpose of his life. It was all really put together beforehand. Even, as I said, the names of the people who lived before the flood bear witness to the story of which we are talking about today.
0: Uh, It's remarkable. The Bible is a precise clock in many respects, now I, I just want to touch on one more and that is that i believe the old testament i think it comes from psalms even describes how the messiah would be worshipped by shepherds and that foreign kings would present gifts to him
3: yes so he, he, this idea that you know uh, uh that the shepherds would flock to him now and foreign kings would come to him and bring gifts to him um all of these things have been spoken um in, in god's word beforehand and so Who were these kings? Where did they come from? And why was it that the first people that ever, you know, heard about this important man were shepherds, you know? There are reasons for all of these things. Again, there's a coded symbolic language that tells a much larger and deeper spiritual story, but it's a real story. Um, So when Daniel uh, was in uh, service to the king of Babylon... The king of Babylon had a dream that no one could understand, and Daniel was given the secret by God, and he was able to crack open the code. He told the dr- the king the dream that he had, before, be- without even hearing the dream. He told the king the dream that the, that the king had had, because that was the king's condition for trusting the interpretation. He said, first tell me the dream, and God revealed it, and Daniel told him the dream and told him what it meant. And as a reward... The king was so impressed that he made Daniel the head of the Magi. Now, who were the Magi? The Magi were a caste of priests um, in the uh, Babylonian and Persian kingdoms. It was a hereditary priesthood, like the Aaronic Priesthood, meaning that the high priest, when he died, his son would become the high priest. And these guys were so involved into the political system, because in the ancient world, all the way into the Roman Empire, uh, where the priests of Jupiter were senators of Rome, um, the the power of 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 the gods of heaven had been given to the kings of the earth. That's how humans understood the source of rulership. And so the magis were very much part of the system of of kings. Um, In fact, that's the Persian word for parliament is majles. To this day, the parliament of Iran, right now in Iran, the parliament is called majles because it comes from the word magi, because these guys were, you know, part of the governmental system uh, and they chose kings and they spoke to kings. Um, The English word magistrate comes from the word magi, again, pointing to the fact that they had the role of judges. And so they were very important people, um, and Daniel becomes their head. Now, we don't have a record of this, but many people believe that it is at that time that God speaks a prophecy uh, for the Magi, and Daniel gives it to them. And because they now respected him, they receive it from him, and they tuck it away, and they now know... That sometime in the future there will be one who will become the king of all nations, and they are to go and worship him, and that they you know they have a sign, and, and they're astronomers, so they were studying the stars. Um, so the magi at this point are part of the Persian Empire, and Israel is a border country between the Roman Empire and the Persian Empire. In fact, it changes hands. Several times before Jesus was born, it was part of the Persian Empire. The Romans had just taken it back, and now was part of the Roman Empire. When you know the story of Joseph and Mary and uh, Bethlehem and the census and and all the stuff we read happens, you know it's now part of the Roman Empire. And Herod is basically a guy who's making a career out of statecraft. He, he basically, uh, you know, petitions the Roman emperor and says, hey, I can manage this place for you. Uh, make me the, the leader. And he's an Edomite, meaning he comes from what's modern-day Jordan. Um, he's, he's descendant of Jacob's brother, Esau. He, you know, and so he's kind of an Edomite, and he, and he gains control of the kingdom uh, uh, as as a as a representative of the Roman Empire, and the Magi cross over from the Persian Empire over to the Roman Empire, and they are these important political figures who they choose kings, and they're dressed in Persian clothing. When you go to uh, this, uh, you know, this this church which was built in the fifth century by one of the Roman em- emperors over uh what is called the cave of the nativity where Jesus was apparently you know born in Bethlehem uh when the Persians uh came uh to 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 you know, conquer Jerusalem and 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 this is now you know um, in the 6th century when they arrived um, they were destroying all kinds of uh structures in in Israel But when they came to Bethlehem and they came to destroy this church, they looked up and the Magi were represented on them and they were wearing Persian clothing. And so they thought, okay, we don't know who these guys are, but they're wearing the same clothes as we're wearing, so we're going to spare this structure. And that's how the Church of Nativity was actually spared by the invading Persian forces because they saw these guys. So when the Magi arrived... We don't know how many of them they were. It doesn't say that in the Bible. It says that there were three gifts, and these gifts are very significant. They mean something. But it doesn't tell us that there were three guys. Well, the oldest records that we have of the Magi in church history it comes from the Eastern Orthodox Church. And their records that became available after the fall of communism tell us that there were 12 Magi, and that they traveled under armed escort because of the importance they had in the political system of their time. And they arrive under armed escort from a competing you know, uh, empire, and they come into the representative of the Roman Empire, the Herod, and they say to him, where is he who is born king of the Jews? Um, meaning you're not a legitimate dude. That's how Herod hears it. he Herod must have thought, "Oh, the Persians are making a move into this border uh, buffer empire, city can you know this buffer country, israel. they they are trying to take this back. I think that's how he must have understood it. Um, and so uh, you know the that was an important uh, Im- Im- important conversation, uh, and yes, that was prophesied. Uh, beforehand, that that these kings, you know, would come and offer these gifts.
0: Right. There's a great deal of debate as to when Jesus was born, and it is uh, suggested that December 25th was not the actual birth date, but the church decided to superimpose the the that date over a pagan holiday, Saturnalia. Uh, yeah. Some have suggested that Jesus was, in fact, born in September. Others have even said in around uh, Passover. What, yes. When do you think he was born, or what, what does the evidence show?
3: That's a great question. Um, you know, you were mentioning the shepherds. Well, the shepherds don't come in the field past uh, September, October, because the ground freezes. And you can't uh, graze uh, animals. Now, Bethlehem was very uh, interesting because the the lambs that were uh, uh, kept for the Passover sacrifice were actually raised and grazed in Bethlehem. And so he wasn't just born among any sheep uh, among any any sheep. he was he was he was born among uh, the sacrificial sheep of the Passover uh, sacrifice. And I think that he's meant to be the shepherd of God's people, and that's why the shepherds represented him, and they received the message first. And these were the shepherds who were shepherding the flock of sacred sheep, so to speak. The sheep that were meant for sacrifice on Passover, one of God's appointed days, which we now know also pointed to Jesus, because he was, you know, killed on Passover. So... It's possible that he was born in the fall, because that's when the the shepherds would have been out. But also there's another important thing in the fall, and that is the appointed days. um, That, you know, God uh, takes seven appointed days in a calendar he establishes and marks them. And we now know that something prophetic happened on each one of those days. Um, So Passover is when Jesus was crucified, so now it activated that day and then he was in the tomb during the feast of unleavened bread which you know now we know it represented him the bread scarred without leaven he was resurrected on the feast of first fruits so another one of god's appointed days was marking the day of a spiritually significant event the resurrection and then the Holy Spirit was re- was sent out on the on another one of these appointed days, Pentecost, uh, which is called in Hebrew Shavuot, which means weeks, the Feast of Weeks. Uh, we, and so the harvest w- was beginning on that day, and that's when the harvest of the faithful began. So, so these days are important. Now, when you kind of come into the fall days, the appointed days of the fall. There is one that is called Sukkot, which means kind of tabernacle, like God dwells with man. And there's a prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet, that when God returns to the earth and he will be with us, ambassadors from every nation will have to go to Jerusalem to worship him on the day of this particular appointed day, Sukkot, because God will be with man and man will go to Jerusalem to see and visit with God in person, not just in spirit. And so it's possible people say, oh, he was born on this day because he was God coming to be with man. That's what Emmanuel means, like you know, like Isaiah had said about the virgin birth. And so this day happens to fall right in the fall where the shepherds would have been out with the animals. Uh, the, and so that is one theory. Those who say, well, no, another one of the appointed days, the spring Passover is when he was born... That's because there is an ancient teaching that prophets are die uh, who those who live these perfect lives and are called by God die on the day they're born. Moses died on the day he was born. And so the idea is Jesus died on Passover, so perhaps he was also born on Passover. So that's those who cope with that theory, you know do that. Those who go with with Sukkot or the Feast of Booths, or be, to, being the appointed day that represents the birth of the Messiah, go with the fall. But regardless, it's clear that it was in December. No matter how you want to turn it around, it was you know one of these appointed days would have for sure you know been talking about the coming of God to the earth, and 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 the shepherds don't come out in December because the ground is frozen. So how did we get December? Yes, it was a Roman holiday, and for the sake of bringing the different, you know, belief systems of the empire together, you know, there are some that are still pagan, others that seem to believe in this, you know, new Jewish religion that's taken over, and it's the latest, greatest, hippest thing, monotheism. Okay, the Roman authorities, you know, weaved those two things together and picked a day that everyone was happy. And that became, you know, December 25th. So it's not a biblical date, nor is it really one of the things we remember in the Bible. Even though I think it's very important to remember, you know, the coming of God to the earth, I think it's absolutely okay to to do that and remember that. Like, you know, Hanukkah is not mentioned in those seven appointed days, too. But Jesus attends the temple and celebrates Hanukkah. It's recorded in the New Testament. So it's important and and I don't think anyone who's a Christian um, uh, thinks of Christmas as anything other than the actually the day that he or she remembers the coming of God into the line of King David. I think that is definitely how everyone in their heart and mind who who believes in the story uh, being real, you know, remembers Christmas. So I don't think. But it's good to have an education. I think to to have a deeper look under the hood. And understand what's going on for sure.
0: Uh, final point, and that is, we uh, of course are in the midst of this great conjunction where Saturn and Jupiter's orbits coincide. They are they are as close as they've been in eight hundred years, which takes us back to the um, the time of uh, I'm, uh, well, the Middle Ages certainly, uh, and then
4: yeah.
0: before that, there was another great conjunction, according to the uh, The great astronomer Johannes Kepler, uh, seven B.C., which might coincide with the birth of Jesus, is what significance does this great conjunction have? Is this the star of Bethlehem in your mind?
3: Um, there is definitely a meaning to conjunctions because God says that He's given us signs, you know, in the heavens, and there's definitely the sun and the moon have been chosen as a signaling system especially when they appear on appointed days of the Bible, like, you know, when there's a full red moon on Passover, or if it appears on, like, for instance, 1948 and 1967, you know, and the the Passovers had red moons, or when Jesus was um, crucified, there was an eclipse of the sun for three hours. Um, the idea is the moon is a signaling system to the Jewish people, the sun a signaling system to the Gentiles, and this, this is kind of a one way that some rabbis have, have cut and sliced it. So definitely there's a meaning, and God is trying to get our attention. Um, what does uh, this mean, the Saturn and Jupiter uh, you know, getting together and shining bright? Um, I don't have an answer that's precise to that. I'll have to see how 2021 unfolds. I know that 2020 was a very unexpected year. Uh, Perhaps it it signals the rise because Jupiter represents the god of the Romans uh, and Saturn as well. I mean, these are very important powers, uh, you know, behind the pagan system, uh, behind, you know, the worldly powers. So perhaps it's signaling that, that they're about to rise in a stronger way in the year ahead of us. Don't quote me on it. I'm just, I'm just, you know, putting information I have in my mind together. Uh, this is not something, you know, that is from scripture. Um, as far as the star of Bethlehem, it's possible, and people have taken astronomical records out of China, because the Chinese had astronomical records at the time of Jesus. They were already keeping records of of the movement of the stars. Um, And people say, look, there was an alignment at the time of Jesus, and probably this is what the uh, Magi followed and saw, and and that's very, very possible, and uh, very possible. There's another perspective um, that I find compelling, and that is that angels um, sometimes, you know, when they travel and lead people, they appear like bright, shining lights in the night sky, And today we have lots of people that come out and they say, I see bright lights in the sky at the night, you know, moving around. Because what's interesting about this story of the Magi and their star is that the star appears and then disappears and then stands still on a specific spot. And they are led to it. Um, Sometimes one could say stars don't exactly behave that way, but um, vehicles carrying angels at night may. And so it's possible that there's even something more uh, in the story, that it is, is a sign from heaven that they're following, but not not the astronomical kind, you know, something that Jacques Vallée might have seen in the Paris Observatory as he looked up, but not something necessarily that's natural. It, there might have been a conscious being, you know, that they were following into the location. So that's also another explanation, but uh, so it's very interesting. We'll see, we'll see what next year brings.
0: Well, Ali, it's been a wonderful conversation with you. Thank you. And again, all the best of the season. Merry Christmas. And my wish and prayer for you and your family, uh, joyous, peaceful, prosperous 2021, and for all of us. Yeah,
3: same to you, Richard, and to your family and to the people listening. It's so incredible to think that God wants to be with each one of us that has gone to such extreme extents to come to the earth, to visit us, to send His Spirit to us, and that he's written the story beforehand so that, you know, we know that this is true, you know, by looking at how it was put together. Like Peter says, we have the more sure word of prophecy, even though we eyewitnessed it. He says, we have the more sure word of prophecy to guide our eyes, you know, as a a lamp in the night.